scripture reading comes from the book of Galatians, the sixth chapter and the ninth verse. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. If we had more time this morning, I would, I would like for us to just sit and think about that verse for a moment and, and let it resonate and marinate in our hearts. It's a powerful verse, especially if you've read it in its context. You know what Paul is talking about as he is addressing the spiritual condition of the Galatian Christians. I, I want to return to it in just a moment. But in doing that, I also would like to say from my own personal perspective... There have been times when people have come to me and they've asked me about some of the takeaways, some of the things that I've learned in my years of preaching. And on occasion, people will ask that question not in any kind of perfunctory way, uh, as in, so how are things going? They, they really want to know what, what are the things that I remember most and that stand out in my years of ministry. And, and usually that's followed up with, by a question like, what are... What are your greatest joys and what are your greatest sorrows? The second of those questions is easy to answer because it has to do with this text. It's knowing those who at one time conscientiously and sincerely decided to follow Jesus, but for whatever reason, later on in life decided against it. And they laid down their armor and they left the field of battle never to return. That has to be the greatest sorrow. And I know that that is not unique to those of us who preach. Every one of us this morning in this place and who are joining us online know of people that uh, you love who at one time were faithful Christians, but now they are no longer so. It's been said, I read this somewhere, that when Winston Churchill was invited to speak at the graduation ceremonies of a prestigious university, he presented what has come to be his most famous speech, it was during World War II, and the speech was comprised of only eight words. The words were men, never, ever, 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 ever give up. And then he sat down. There were occasions when Jesus said something very similar to his followers. Because he recognized that Christianity and following Jesus and making that commitment comprised more than just an intellectual decision. It involves our heart, it involves our being, it involves everything about us that is important and eternal. No wonder when he was asked what was the first and great commandment, he said, it's to love God with all of your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And so we recognize today, even 2,000 years later, how important that is. Jesus encouraged his followers with a very similar message to that of Churchill, but he used different words and in the very last book of the Bible, we find this record. Chapter 2, verse 10 of the book of Revelation. Listen to this. Jesus says, do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And you will have tribulation ten days. Notice particularly this last admonition. But be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. 
What was the Lord saying to those beleaguered saints in Rome? I think he was simply saying, don't ever give up. In John 16, again to his disciples, he said, These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. And in the Sermon of the Mount, he said, Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12 record, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. The message comes through loud and clear in each and every one of these passages. Our Lord is saying to them then and now to us today, don't quit. Don't ever, ever give up. I think these inspired writers admonished all Christians everywhere with the never give up message in the New Testament letters. Let me give you three quick examples of that. In Hebrews 3 verse 14, the writer by inspiration said, For we have become partakers of Christ. Notice the conditional nature, however, of this statement. He goes on to say, If, if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. And then Paul ends that great resurrection chapter. In 1 Corinthians 15, by saying in verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in, in uh, the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That sounds very similar, does it not, to our text. Don't ever give up. Don't ever lose heart. Don't ever let there come a time in your life when you've decided, I no longer want to follow Jesus. Back to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 10, reads like this. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name. The Lord, through, through inspiration, is helping them and this audience today to appreciate that every one of us needs to have spiritual tenacity or perseverance in our lives. Listen carefully, church. The God of heaven and earth does not want us to grow discouraged. He does not want us to quit. And I would, uh, I would offer this as a challenge. Just about any page in the New Testament at least, there's going to be some kind of admonition, some kind of encouragement to continued faithfulness. Because the Lord understood and we need to understand that there's more involved than just making that initial decision that yes, I want to put on Christ in baptism. You also know, as we just read from Revelation 2.10, that there's the matter about, about being faithful even unto death. And so each of us recognizes that this, this, uh, this matter is so very important. The problem with many of us is that we did not, in the words of the Hebrews writer, that we didn't begin the Christian race in good confidence. It's that we didn't finish. Paul knew what that was like. I'm sure he was surrounded by people who, who made the conscious decision to follow Jesus, but later changed their minds. As I've often said, anyone can begin a marathon race. Relatively few will end it 26 miles, 385 yards later. Brother Basil Overton, a faithful gospel preacher from North Alabama, used to say, we need not only initiative, we need finitive as well. And every one of us needs that quality in our lives. Paul said the same thing by inspiration in our text. Let's look at it one more time. It's powerful stuff. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. So always remember that the Christian life is a marathon race. It is not a 100 meter dash. 
And I've often said also that the problem with many Christians isn't that they did not do good in their lives. It's that they did not do it long enough. Consider three areas in our lives in which we should never quit. And I believe we'll find all of these to be very much biblically based because God's concern is for our spiritual perseverance. First of all, the Bible tells us to don't quit when you're tempted by sin. Too many of God's people, I'm afraid, fear that they lose a battle. And when they lose the battle, they assume that they have lost the war. And that is not so. Every one of us has made mistakes in our lives. We, we fail. We have feet of clay. And there are times when we should make the right decision and we make the wrong decision. I've talked to a lot of Christians during my years in the ministry who were tempted to quit simply because they were recognizing a season of great temptation in their life. Some of them even had spiritual PTSD, and you know what I'm talking about. They're, they're shell-shocked by the, 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 the strength of the temptation that is coming in their direction, and maybe even the sin that they have gotten involved in. And they don't know how to handle that, emotionally or spiritually. And, and with some of them, it's because they began with a faulty premise that, that says, when you become a Christian, you'll never be tempted again. That's not what the Bible says. In fact, the Bible actually teaches the reverse. When we make a conscious decision to follow Jesus, that's when there's a target on our backs. And Satan is going to work to try to win us back to his side. We need to remember two things when we find ourselves in that kind of situation and in that frame of mind. The first thing we need to remember is that temptation is not the same thing as sin. And I'm delighted to be able to make that announcement. I've talked to people who on occasion have been tempted. And they're so very concerned as well they should be. But they almost act as if I'm guilty because I've been tempted. Well, we need to make sure that we don't put ourselves in a place where we're going to be tempted and we know that we're going to be tempted as the old saying goes if you don't want to slip stay out of slippery places but by the same token there's another extreme to that thinking that recognizes that when you're tempted that doesn't mean that you've succumbed to the temptation because the second thing I want to remind you of is that the Lord himself the sinless savior was also tempted if you don't believe that read the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 4 and you'll find that our Lord underwent intense persecution in the wilderness in fact Matthew 4 says that he was tempted in three specific ways first with food remember verse 3 to turn the stones into bread the second way was to misuse the power of miracles and to abuse his divine power that's verse 6 of Matthew 4 and also with power and wealth when he was offered the kingdoms of the earth in verse 9. But he did not quit and he did not succumb to those temptations. So first of all, we've got to be squared away on the reality of the fact that when we're tempted, that does not mean that we failed. It just means that we're human. It means that we're living in this world. It means that as long as there is breath in us that Satan is not going to give up and he's going to continue working on us. And that ought not to make us paranoid, but it should make us prepared. And it should help us every day to recognize how important it is that this day, tomorrow, I'm going to worry about tomorrow. But today, I'm going to try, try to stay faithful to the Lord. I'm going to try to make good decisions. I'm going to make right choices. But he did not quit. He did not succumb to temptation. In fact, that's why Hebrews 4.15 is in the Bible. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses but was in all points tempted just as we are, yet without sin. That ought to make a difference. That ought to give us some spiritual tenacity. 
It should help us each day when we're tempted to recognize that our Lord was tempted in every point just as we are. So just because we're assailed by temptation does not mean that the spiritual battle is over. It just means that we need to suit up for war. And let me tell you, folks, it is a war that we're in. Make no mistake about it. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1 beginning is where Paul talks about the need for putting on the whole armor of God. And then he ends that in verse 10, I remind you by saying, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. That's where the real strength comes from. By ourselves, left to ourselves, we're going to lose the battle every time. But the writer tells us that, that God will be with us every step of the way. He will give us, he will equip us with what we need at the moment. To be able to win that spiritual battle. So temptation is a spiritual reality. God's word tells us over and over again that not only are we going to be tempted, it also tells us how that temptation will come. Look at James chapter 1, beginning with verse 13 for just a moment. I want us to look at about three verses. James chapter 1, James begins by dissecting temptation and sin. Because sometimes we want to put the responsibility and the obligation for overcoming sin on other people. But if we recognize that sin begins when I don't control my own thought life, when I'm not thinking the way I ought to think, and I'm not allowing those things to be lined up and prioritized properly in my life. Here's what James says, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. You know, there's some Christians that ought to underline that in their Bible. God is not the source of our temptation. He's on our side. He doesn't want to see any one of us fail spiritually. He wants to see us succeed every time. But he goes on to say, here's where it does come from. If it doesn't come from God, where does it, where's the source? But each one of us is tempted when he's drawn away of his own desires and enticed. And then when desire has conceived, it, brings, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. And then he ends by saying, this, giving this admonition, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. So the first place to start is to recognize where sin and temptation do come from. And yet so many give up when they stumble and when they sin. They think it's all over and they think that the war has been lost. They, in the heat of battle, forget that Jesus himself was tempted and that he understands or he sympathizes with our weaknesses. Let me say it again, lest you've forgotten the title of this lesson. Don't ever quit. Don't ever let there come a time in your life where you're so low emotionally and or spiritually that you decide that you would be better off not to live the Christian life. When the world is after you, don't give up. To me, some of the saddest words in all the Bible have to be found in Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 4, verse 10, where I imagine with tears in his eyes, Paul wrote these words, but Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. You know, we need to admit it when we're tempted, and we certainly need to know what our own particular spiritual weaknesses are, because after all, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Phil Calloway is a man who, as a believer, works with fellow Christian men, and especially in the area of marriage and in all the responsibilities that men have in that particular uh, situation. And Calloway's 
observations, well, there are many, but let me share just one with you. He says, and I'm quoting now, Callaway writes, 90% of Christian guys struggle with lust. Well, that's 90%. What about the other 10%? He says, well, 4% have a medical problem and 6% are pathological liars. I, I can believe that. It is a battle that we're in. We're all, we all struggle. We're in a war. And if you refuse to quit, God will write your name among the great persons of history. I heard about a teenager who decided to quit high school. He, he said he was fed up with it all, didn't want to do that anymore, tired of the daily drudgery. And his dad sat him down and said, son, you can't quit. All the people who are remembered in history are people who absolutely refused to quit. Abraham Lincoln did not quit. Thomas Edison refused to quit. Douglas MacArthur did not quit. Elmo McGringle. And the son said, wait, Elmo McGringle? Who in the world is Elmo McGringle? He said, exactly. He quit. <laughs> you, and, and, and test it. In this book, those who are worth recording in Holy Writ are persons, Old or New Testament, who stayed with it. Just kept doing it. Being faithful to God one day at a time. But what about tomorrow? You don't understand what I'm going to be under. Don't worry about tomorrow now. You worry about today, today. And if we'll do that one day at a time, God will help us in that effort. Secondly, do not quit when you're threatened by man. There have been times when this was not particularly relevant to our lives because we did not feel all that threatened as Christians. That day, sadly, is over. Jesus was, was threatened on numerous occasions. Let him be crucified was the cry that rang out the day that Jesus was nailed to that old rugged cross. You search the gospel accounts and you see how many times in Jesus' personal three-year ministry that his enemy sought to kill him. I'm not talking about, let's see if we can shut this guy up. I'm talking about see if we can shut him up permanently. And it seems that there was always one contract or another out on the life of Jesus. See how often he had to move from one city to another because of the dangers and the bodily harm that was threatened against him. It seems that there was always a price on his head. His enemies were always wanting to, in the words of a recent movie, wanting to terminate him with extreme prejudice. I mean, you see that all the way through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Peter and John, as his apostles knew what that was like, they, they were constantly threatened as well. There's a passage that made an impression on me many years ago, and I still appreciate the fact that it's recorded in Scripture, and it's Acts, 8 and, uh, Acts 4, rather, in verse 18. Acts 4, verse 18 says, and they call them, and in this particular context, he's talking specifically about Peter and John, and they call them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now, can you imagine? You've read your job description and you know what it means to be a disciple and particularly to be an apostle of the Lord. And you know that that means that I'm to be an ambassador and I am to walk in this world for him and I am to communicate his message to everyone that I can. The Lord said before he left this earth, go preach the gospel to every creature. So that's my, that's my calling card. Those are my marching orders. And Peter and John knew that. But now they're being commanded by the authorities, don't ever speak anymore in the name of this Jesus fellow. And then down two verses later, verse 20, in a victorious way, we have their response. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. I love that. These men were saying, 
we're not going to quit. You can't make us quit. We're not stopping. And so you better keep an eye on us was the implication because as soon as you leave, we're going to start preaching the gospel of Jesus. They knew what we should know. And that is that the genuine Christian is either going to be delivered from death or we will be delivered by death. Paul and Silas were threatened and beaten on more than one occasion. Listen to Acts 16, verse 22. And the multitude rose up against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And then Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, in verse 25, specifically said, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the sea. All of these men recognized that there was a physical price to pay for following Jesus. Now, that's not quite so much on the radar screen in our lives. I don't imagine anyone left home this morning for the university church with worship on your mind, wondering if you're going to make it home alive. Now, traffic on Atlanta Highway, that's another matter. Good question. Will I make it home alive? But we're not concerned so much about persecution. We're not so much concerned about someone finding out that the authorities of the city find out that we're in this building, we're worshiping, and so they're going to come in and incarcerate us or kill us. That's not really a concern that we have. But we need to recognize that if it came to that, we'd do the right thing. We'd just keep on opening our doors and we'd keep on worshiping, wouldn't we, church? If we understand what's at stake, we're willing to pay the price. Here's a third matter that scripture calls us to when it comes to spiritual perseverance. And that is do not quit when you're tired and discouraged. At the beginning of this lesson, I referenced those that I've known, some of which whose faces are still right now in my mind, who've decided that they didn't want to live the Christian life any longer and how tragic that is. And I'm sure that there are people that you could name in that category as well. For most of them, it was not a rational decision in the sense of, well, I've studied Christianity a lot more than I did when I first became a Christian, and I've just decided that there is no veracity to it, that, that I don't believe in God or in Christ, and a few of them perhaps, but not many. For most, it's just a matter of discouragement of staying at it for all this time, not seeing an immediate payoff, at least in the lives of some, and deciding that the Lord must not be noticing the price that we're paying to follow him. Jesus was tired beyond description on many occasions. I'm talking about the Son of God. God in the flesh found himself tired, fatigued, could not go another step. And so we find passages like Mark 6, 31. And he, that is Jesus, said unto them, his disciples, Come you yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. For there were many coming and going, and they did not have time so much even as to eat. I've been busy. I've never been too busy to eat. And yet these men were so involved in the ministry of Christ. They were so tired. And the Lord said, what you need to do is just come apart and, and rest for a while. And we just, we just come apart. We forget about the resting part. The night before his crucifixion, the Bible says he was up all night in prayerful consternation. You know, we have a problem with the super committed in the church today as I see it. And the problem has actually got a term that we have coined 
that's called burnout. Now, that's not unique to Christian service, but it is a factor in the lives of some who can't say no down at church. They're involved in so many things that eventually they burn out. It's been said that 20% of the average congregation is doing 80% of the work. I have no reason to disbelieve that. But don't miss this. What we do in response to our spiritual fatigue will determine our destiny. You see, some in the church get tired and discouraged, and they do one of three things. Number one, sometimes they'll just decide to sit on a pew, and I'll watch others do the work. Elton Trueblood, in one of his books, has said that Christianity is the greatest spectator sport in the United States. I believe that. And remember what John said about lukewarm Christians, or at least he recorded, and Jesus said in Revelation 3, verse 16, Secondly, some decide, I'm just going to quit the church, and so they walk away, never to return. And Peter says the latter state with them is worse than the first state. That's 2 Peter chapter 2, 20 through 22. And here's the third option, and it's the one that I would recommend. When they get tired and discouraged in Christian service, they reassess, reevaluate, and renew their minds and their spirits. That's the only way, folks, that we're going to make it. And it can't always be because somebody else has encouraged us. One of the most powerful statements of the Old Testament I preached an entire lesson on one time was about how that David, the Bible says, encouraged himself in the Lord. And sometimes you've got to do that, don't you? You've got you to do some self-talk. And you've got to shore your own defenses up. A friend of mine invited me to speak at the church where he was preaching some years ago out on the West Coast. And I said, well, have you got a theme? Do you have a specific topic that you would like for me to address for your homecoming? And he said, yes. And it's this, new joy for old work. I like that because I think that's an issue that every one of us addresses as Christians at some point in our lives. It might even be necessary to cut back on some areas of involvement. If you find yourself spread too thin down at church, it might be that there are areas in which you've been involved and you might decide that you want to be involved in some other ministry, some other area of service. Nothing wrong with that. Some churches, like here at university, have so many different ministries and opportunities to serve that one person cannot possibly do them all. And if you try to be involved in everything that's going on here at the University Church, guess what? You are going to eventually be a casualty. You will be a victim of burnout. But whatever you do, whatever you do, don't quit. Don't ever let there be a time when you decide, I'm laying down my armor and I'm leaving the field of battle. Woodrow Wilson, I believe, was the one who said, I'd rather fail in a cause that will someday triumph than to triumph in a cause that will someday fail. So the conclusion of these thoughts should be obvious. Don't quit the Lord and do not walk away from his kingdom when you're, th- when you're tempted, when you're threatened, and when you're tired. So that brings it back to you. Where are you this morning in your spiritual life and in your spiritual maturation proce- process? Are you tired? Are you discouraged? Or are you encouraged and you're growing stronger on the inside day by day? I hope that's what's happening in your life. But if you are tired, if you are discouraged, again, I'm here to beg you to plead with you this morning to not give up, to refurbish your spiritual life. Because 
If we quit, if we make that conscious decision to turn our back on the cross, there is no hope for us. Are you showing up in body but mind and spirit or someplace else? When you retired from your secular job, did you also retire from spiritual service? I know you've heard this a number of times, but gentleman Jim Corbett, who held the heavyweight boxing title for five years at the end of the 19th century, wrote this in his memoirs. Fight one more round. When your feet are so tired that you have to shuffle back to the center of the ring, fight one more round. When your arms are so tired that you can hardly lift your hands to come on guard, fight one more round. When your nose is bleeding and your eyes are black and you're so tired that you really wish your opponent would crack you on the jaw and put you to sleep, fight one more round. Remembering that the man who always fights one more round is never defeated. This morning, there are some who need to continue running the Christian race faithfully. And there are others who need to begin running the Christian race. And if we can help you this morning as you decide to follow Jesus... And if we can listen to you confess the wonderful name of Jesus, I believe with all my heart that Jesus is God's son and baptize you into Christ. We're here to help you do just that. If you need to get back on the Lord's highway and live faithfully for him, we'd be happy to pray for you while we stand and while we sing.